0: So do you, do y'all remember when Bernie bros were a thing? Like yeah. in, in the media, the constant talk about Bernie bros, how Bernie Sanders supporters are uniquely toxic online. You remember that? I mean, I,
1: I still kind of, I think it's still sort of hovering around, you know, in various spaces.
0: Maybe, but since the primary is over, it seems like it's sort of in, in, in the background. Now. You know Maybe yeah, it's like-
1: probably more like Slack channels with Neera on them
2: that, that, that <laughs> keep, keep, keep uh,
1: promoting Keeping that it alive. Idea.
0: Keep the Bernie bro alive. Ugh. So, so there was no, you know, let's, let's talk about something that boils my ass. (laughs) Uh, It's a new segment. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no, but uh, there was never any evidence um, that, that Bernie supporters were uniquely toxic among the online, you know, political people. Um, there, there were never any studies that, that showed this. Um, and f- but, and yet you heard it all the, all the time. All you the heard Chuck time. Todd call, call them digital brown shirts. And then, and then later when he was challenged on the term Bernie bros, he's like, well, what do we call them? Bernie siblings? Bernie people? Like, like, okay. Okay. Chuck well, talk. then Chris
1: Matthews, uh, who subsequently uh, was fired, but over something else, over being creepy with women, uh, compared Bernie's Nevada win uh, at, right after you know he won Nevada that night on the MSNBC coverage. He, he compared it to the Nazi invasion of France, and like you know, as a Jew, um, I was I was livid. I was fucking livid with that. Yeah. shit.
0: Yeah. It's really. I mean, that like, and not only like Bernie Sanders could have been the first Jewish president of the United States. And that is, yeah.
1: and no one ever is, talked about no that.
0: No one ever talked about it. It's a big deal. No one ever talked about it. He's the and first. And to be
1: fair, like he tended to downplay that um, only in like, I think he was going sort to of push by some campaign advisors to go more into your personal story. Cause it's a really great story on many levels. Um, but so like part of that's just, I think not him, not promoting it, but all, like all the identity politics folks just like conveniently ignored it.
0: Right, he's the first first non Christian candidate to win a presidential primary uh, contest in the United States. Well, it, it is interesting right. that,
2: that that particular identity falls outside of the um, protected group sort right. of identities, even though they are like the ultimate minority.
0: Right. I
1: mean, until ways. recently, I feel like you know, I, because I, I don't under know, Trump, man. the anti Semitic incidents have gone way up. So I think more people are. Taking it seriously again,
0: it's just not—it's um, not all that talked about because Jews are, you
2: know,
1: there are <laughs> like
0: arguably reasons
2: for it, but it is—it's right. interesting. Well, yeah,
1: the, I mean, the 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 Ashkenazi people with Ashkenazi ancestry are are considered white by non Nazis, mm-hmm. although the Nazis think like all Jews are are not part of the white race. Um, so that's just one opinion.
0: Right. So anyway, let's, let's get back to the topic (laughs) at hand. So you have all of these people talking about Bernie Bros and and, and, and it, it seems like it's almost every night, right? You hear about how the, the Bernie Bros are, are online and they're very toxic and they're, they're bad and, and this sort of, uh, this works its way into like, into actual reporting, uh, the New York Times ran an article called "Bernie Sanders and His Internet Army" in January of 2020. Uh, Bernie Sanders again facing fallout over his supporters' abusive behavior online. That's LA Times. The next month, "The Swarm: How a Subset of Bernie Supporters Use Hostile Tactics to Drown Out Critics." That's CNN. Also in February,
2: so, like, so, and, and these things—they—it's they, not just a bunch of headlines like these have real world impacts and they, they certainly impacted the race, right? That's why they were repeated so many times. They just, they enforced this narrative that Sanders was divisive, um, uncompromising, definitely, you know, completely out of control. Um, he can't even keep his attack dogs in line. Um, so it, it, it feels, starts to feel coordinated at a certain point, whether intentionally or not.
0: Right and and this is the this is the problem like and and first of all like there's also there's counter evidence to this right um there's a a 2016 survey done by the rad campaign that finds that clinton supporters were more hostile online or perceived as more hostile than sanders supporters and then a data scientist in march conducted a study where he found that online hostility is not limited to any one campaign, and and, and there is there's no uh, there's no ten there's no t- uh, unique tendency among Bernie supporters to, to be hostile. To he, he he wrote a Salon piece, and the quote is: uh, first, there's a general tendency for online behavior to be negative, known as online uh, disinhibition of, the online disinhibition effect." But it I affects mean, who, all people equally, not merely Sanders supporters. Who
1: could have possibly predicted that four to five years of completely, like, circumstantial based articles, you know, anecdotal uh, articles might not actually be accurate? It, it's crazy to me that, you know, an actual a, a, a database study would could disprove something like that. I, I just thought that, you know, obviously, you know, that these seven people were mean online means that Bernie Sanders is personally responsible for, for it.
0: Of course. And so, so anyway, this, this narrative becomes so ubiquitous. It's just accepted by the political class in this country. And nobody, nobody questions it. There, there's, b- before this study, this study that came out in March, nobody really questioned it. Um, and, it, it was accepted by th- by voters too. I mean, I saw this on Facebook. I saw people posting, "Oh, the Bernie Bros are just so they're so toxic. They're so hostile. They're so white. They're so male. They're so th- this, that, and the other thing." And and it was all wrong. I mean, it and was, that
1: was something that really unified, like the centrists, the libs, and the kind of Warren progressive. To some of the Warren progressives, I should say, uh, was just this sort of universal acceptance of the Bernie Bro as being a real thing.
0: Right, and I mean. I, I think, as Mark said, it probably affected the race. So this story, this, the Bernie bro narrative and how, how widespread it got, really shows how a handful of big media outlets dominate the industry and have the ability to not only determine the news cycle, but to also build consensus. But what happens when they get stuff wrong? And that's what we're going to tackle today. This is another episode of Gilded Age, the podcast where we discuss how and why we're fucked. As always, I'm Walker Bragman.
2: I'm Alex Koch. I'm Mark Colangelo.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about the media and how it's been failing us. And we're going to be joined later by Maria Bustillos, who's the founder of Popula.com. So stay tuned. back. Before we get to today's topic, we're going to do a segment we call Tweet of the Week. So every week, we want to highlight the really best of online, the smartest thought leaders, the wokest libs, the biggest galaxy brains of the digital era. And if we got one for you, so this week's Tweet of the Week comes from Tom Watson, Oh yeah. <laughs> who we recently learned is Elliot Engel's campaign spokesperson. Amazing. Yeah, it, It's, oh my God, it is uh, incredible. So he said that the New York Times endorsing Engel's primary opponent, Jamal Bowman, a black middle school principal, is payback for Engel announcing that he wouldn't seek their endorsement over the publication of Tom Cotton's op-ed. Whew, man, there's a lot there. So what Watson doesn't mention is that just two days before Angle made his heroic declaration, he'd been caught on a hot mic saying that he wouldn't care to speak about police brutality. He was attending a a, a rally uh, for you know to, to talk about it in the wake of the um, the George Floyd uh, murder, and he was trying to to get to get onto the microphone and the Bronx borough president told him there's a line of people in front of you. And he, and, and, uh, Engel says, I wouldn't care if I weren't facing a primary challenger.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you. Thank you, Elliot for, for making the long trek uh, from Maryland up to the place you're supposedly represent and live. Um, I just, I think we should all just, that, I mean, not only was the declaration heroic, but the actual, just the fact that he was there is heroic. So we, we should all thank, uh, Mr. Engel.
0: It's just it's just so cynical though, right? Like, like I'm not gonna take the New York Times endorsement. Well, motherfucker, they're not even gonna offer it to you.
1: Yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> so called lack of seek. Come on. He's the most establishment person ever. Of course he would seek the New York Times endorsement.
0: Of course. You know, so so anyway, you know, but, good but, but, on but, you, Tom. That is some that is No, some- but I, I
1: wanna I wanna highlight also that the Tom Watson's Tom Watson's allegation that um, that Jamal Bowen couldn't earn the New York Times endorsement on his own merit is racist. I mean it's 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 a racist statement in the context of all of this. Um, so you know Mr. Tom Watson, who was was, you know, the Hillary man of all Hillary men the Warren Stan allegedly in the Democratic primary uh, is now backing one of the worst establishment ghouls in the Democratic Party, who first of all uh, supported not holding t- Donald Trump back from bombing Iran, um, and second of all has made a, a you know a, a quasi racist statement here.
0: Well, it's just fun to watch to watch people like Watson, who uh, you know Tom has. Tom and I have a storied relationship. Um, Tom, if you're listening, I'm sure that you're not. There are
1: volumes if, of, of epic history books written about this relationship.
0: Right. So, Tom, if, if you are listening, I'd love we'd love to have you on. I'd love to have you talk freely, although it doesn't seem like you're capable of doing that as a campaign spokesperson. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: well, he blocked me as well, so I I don't know we'll how does that work. Also,
0: unblock Alex. You got to unblock Alex. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: can is, can you fit? Is it? I don't know if this would work, like uh, metaphysically speaking. Like, right? If you're if you're blocked on Twitter, can you actually be on the same podcast together?
0: So you actually can. I oh, know okay. that that might seem strange.
1: I thought Twitter was real life, though.
0: Well, right. Well, it's it's sort of a mix, right? It's not real life when it's conveniently not real life, and then it's real life when it's indicative of things. Going, nobody knows what the fuck they're talking about. That's, so basically that's
1: I actually am not a significant person whatsoever is what you're saying. That's well, fine.
0: Right. I mean well none of us
2: are. Well you guys have blue checks at least right? I no know.
1: but if Twitter is not real life then it doesn't matter.
0: Oh my I mean, gosh. He's right though. Every day I wake up and just
1: praise the fact that I have a blue check mark. Otherwise my life would be worthless and I'm going to do I'm going to pull a Lara Loomer and go chain myself to the Twitter headquarters. <laughs> Maybe I mean I get it now. I feel her pain. Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean it's so it's it's so legitimizing, and frankly, it's a charity that marks even here. You know, like right, talented writer, smart guy, but like, are you verified on social media? I, I don't have that blue check. I you don't just have don't have it.
1: Well, we got to work on that. Maybe in the next eight to 10 years, Twitter will respond to uh, user messages about <laughs> verification <laughs> and about unsuspending accounts, which has been a problem in my case.
0: Yeah. And, good, but good anyway, good you know who does that. have a blue check? It's T. Watson. Oh, yeah. So, you know, Tom, we'd love to have you on. Um, but that's all, that's all we have to say about you.
1: If you're listening to this on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your casts, please consider becoming a paid subscriber on Patreon. For five bucks a month, you'll get access to premium episodes, which will often be interviews with politicians, candidates, reporters, authors, and professors. So, if you can, please pitch in at patreon.com slash gildedage. 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 All right, and we are back with our main segment today, why the media is so fucked up. So in order to analyze the present, we have to look at the past. Um, How did we get here? Now, the consolidation of media was already a problem in the 1980s. Uh, In the 1983 well-known book, The Media Monopoly, uh, Ben Bagdikian uh, revealed that just 50 corporations owned about 90% of of American media. Uh, But that wasn't nearly enough consolidation for Bill Clinton, the president in the nineties. Um, in 96, he signed the telecommunications act. Um, which was, I think, the first overhaul of the very law that created the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, uh, like 30 in the 1930s. Um, so the bill naturally was lobbied on by um, a bunch of, you know, telecommunications uh, and media industry lobbyists. Uh, and um, I'm sure everyone will be shocked to know it was a vastly bipartisan bill.
0: What?
1: So only 3% of Congress voted against the bill. Uh, It was five senators and 16 members of the House.
0: Wait, wait, wait. Don't tell me. One of them was Bernie Sanders.
1: Ding, ding. In fact, you are (laughs) right about that. (laughs) Then Representative Bernard Sanders of Vermont voted against it. So by 2012, just six corporations owned nearly 90% of the major media companies in the U.S. Um, So 50 companies in 83 went all the way down to six companies in 2012. That's
2: some major consolidation.
0: That sounds like a really healthy free market to me. And,
2: Thank you, Bill. And it's, it's kind of frightening now because with this whole COVID-19 situation, right? Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's just accelerating consolidation, um, everywhere yeah. and widening the gap between the, the rich and the poor again in, in most places. But, it's, but, uh, media is being hurt, um, especially bad. I, I think now, about thirty six thousand workers at news companies in the U.S. have been laid off, uh, or for or furloughed, because oh, of COVID. Um, so the big the big guys who can um, afford to withstand this and wait this out are just they're they're just going to get stronger once once things return and yeah. Are and the same
1: th- thing it's like the same thing that happened with the banks and plenty of other industries after the uh, Great Recession or during the Great Recession. They just eat up the smaller um companies that can't hack it it's the same thing i think with the with media with, sphere with
2: now. a little government intervention there to help out the big guys
1: um yes exactly but honestly these small these small shops are, i mean they'd be lucky if they're they're eaten up by the bigger companies but not even that's happening in media right
0: right they're just closing down that's yeah, it's super problematic and more than that you know, you also have the situation where hedge funds are buying up local media outlets, which is a lot of the journalism in the country comes from small media outlets. Uh, Hassan Minhaj does a great episode on this on his Netflix show, The Patriot Act, and I just wanted to shout that out. Um, he points out exactly how how these, these media properties are getting bought up in leveraged buyouts uh, and then piled up with debt. Have, and all the productivity, all the all the the money is squeezed out of them, and then they go under. and they have to cut staff, and it's really sucking the life out of the out of the industry. Here's how it usually works. The fund buys a company like a newspaper, but instead of paying for it themselves, they take out a huge loan to help buy it. That's the leverage. But here's the fucked up part. They dump all that debt back on the company while doing everything they can to squeeze the money out of the company. They sell off real estate, they lay off staff, and charge huge management fees. And because of the way our financial laws work, if they bankrupt the company, they're not on the hook for anything. It's the finance version of jumping out of an elevator right after you rip ass. But in this case, the fart is so bad, it shuts down the whole building. One study found that large companies acquired in LBOs are 10 times more likely to go bankrupt and the human costs are very real.
3: In the last 10 years, private equity is behind 597,000 lost jobs.
0: Journalism really is in crisis. Uh, and, and, and and it's worth pointing out that even at the big outlets, profit margins are generally slim. Like, we have a problem and it's not just uh, it's it's not just that like a handful of companies dominate the industry. It's that the industry generally is less profitable today than it uh, than it should be, than it needs to be. And and I don't know what the solution is. Maybe it's it's government funding. Maybe it's um. I, I mean, let's be honest. It's probably government funding. We're probably going to well, have
1: to I, fund. I, I think I think yeah, I think that's got to be part
2: of it. There's this sense that social media um, will be a renaissance for journalism in a in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways it has and that's it's empowered smaller voices but it is um as these media companies have tried to um as these news organizations have tried to adapt to the social media landscape um it's just they they, it's just been a race to the bottom um in a lot of ways and they're they are so disempowered well i think yeah
1: i mean i think the biggest problem with the social media companies is, you know, Facebook and Google predominantly is they're eating up all the ad dollars that used to go to small papers, big papers too. Um, so I think, you know, breaking up the, the big platforms like Facebook and Google is pretty essential if we're going to get to any kind of, uh, stability for the journalism industry.
2: Right. So we can get all the benefits and less of the downsides if we, if we break up these monopolies. Also,
1: uh, we should just, we should just do a citizens firing of Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs>
2: um,
1: I mean, isn't there? There's got to be some way to do that. Um, I mean, there isn't. But uh, the okay, world but would be much better. His
2: board can't even fire him, by the way.
1: <laughs> oh right, didn't they like they like they actually changed that recently so he can't be fired? Right?
0: Yeah. So so without getting without getting uh, too off track, we should do an episode. Uh, maybe we should do an episode on on how social media is affecting uh, the national discussion. Yeah, that'd be a great. I think that would be a good, a good topic. But anyway, I wanted to, I wanted to get us back on track here for a second. Um, and just point out so that, so the situation now with media is that we have a few big companies that dominate the industry. Uh, they're not super profitable, but they're able to exist because they've got the name and I mean, they've got billionaire backers. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington post. Um, And these companies really do dominate the narrative. And when they get it wrong, it's a fucking catastrophe. The problem is that they have a a monopoly on legitimacy. So in addition to their big names, they're able to do more original reporting on more subjects than smaller outlets. Uh, and so they're able to access, um, they're able to get access that smaller outlets don't have. And in that sense, their relationship with power is inherently symbiotic. Uh, and now without rehashing manufacturing consent, uh, Chomsky and Herman's influential uh, work, it's very problematic for our national discourse when you have a few Praetorians who are able to exert so much influence. And they're they're able to limit the discussion to center left, to center right, or maybe well, center just, left, to far right.
1: Right. And just one little point about the access question, you know, it's, it's also because these are reporters who are sort of trained or their institutions uh, sort of tell them to work your connections such that you're not antagonizing them enough that they will cut you off from, from being a source. So that's kind of the sort of catch-22, I guess, about access journalism is like, yes, you're going to have access to more information, but then you can't necessarily be honest about how you report that information because if you do, then you might alienate your sources and you won't have a story next week.
0: Or you might alienate your advertisers.
1: Well, right. Although oh, a lot
0: of these outlets do a, a subscription model, so it's, it's a but little they different.
1: but they they have like New York Times has both. I mean, they have lots of advertising right. in addition to subscriptions.
0: All right. So when they get stories wrong, they really get them wrong, and they have these devastating consequences for the the country and for the world. And and I mean, the most the example that pops most readily to my mind is the reporting on Russia in the '90s, and we've talked about this. Uh, before what happened to russia in the 90s Mm -hmm. Uh, after the fall of the soviet union america stepped up to help liberalize uh, russia's economy at first americans were welcomed there um, and the program was headed by harvard and involved privatizing large swaths of the economy which did three things it created a class of oligarchs it sent russia into a deep decade-long depression and it empowered a a man who would who would uh, frame himself as the, the savior against the, the West, uh, Vladimir Putin.
1: God, I love Harvard University. I just want to say that.
0: Right. <laughs> so millions of Russians die. Uh, and through it all, the media acted like a cheerleader. To give you an idea, uh, there was an article in the New York Times titled Moscow on the Make, which came out in 1997. Um, one year about a year before Russia's economy bottoms out. Um, and it, right, the, the quote from the article that, uh, that's, that I have here is Not all have prospered in the new Moscow, but none wish to walk away. In less than a decade, these five people uh, the, and millions like them have made themselves new. Once numbed by the leaden certainties of communism, they are now propelled by change.
1: What a great way to do an accurate story. As I've said before in this podcast, anecdotal evidence surely proves a, a giant point.
0: So you know, when I talked to um, I talked to Matt Taibbi and uh, and uh, another journalist who was working in Russia at the time about what things were actually like, and 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 Taibbi describes seeing like dead bodies on his way to work, like just to give you an idea of what Russia was like at the time and and it was it was uh, sort of a, a wild west uh time if if ever there was one uh in in Russia so i actually spoke so i actually spoke to the author of that new york times piece back in february of 2018 mm-hmm. and he conceded to me uh that quote there was a tremendous uh worldwide view that for worse or very worse things were changing for good and things were changing in a great way and i think i and other journalists were probably as guilty of feeling that way as everyone else in the liberal intelligentsia he also conceded that the press was likely naive and too credulous when it came to accepting in the analyses of the united of u.s government officials on the state of russia's economy but he did caution that you know you only have a, a limited pool of experts and that the the Russian economic, because Russian economic policy was uh, something only a very small number of people understood. And so he said that the, those guys, um, meaning his experts, believed in something they wanted to happen. And we, we've kind of figured, yeah, it kind of makes sense.
1: But it's like, it's not just that this happened in a vacuum. Like the US had done this to other countries before. And we had seen what happened, you know, kind of tanking their economies, ushering a lot of poverty. Um, with because of the neoliberal uh, reforms that we kind of forced upon the country so, but but even with that history i guess i guess the the times was just there's they're just still kind of believing whatever they were told
0: yeah but it so, wasn't just it wasn't just the times it was the Washington right. post as well i mean there was the, all of these legacy outlets were selling this this narrative and yeah. it,
2: it's it's unclear where naivety ends and being complicit starts mm-hmm. um i mean there, there's this book – i think it was out fairly recently but i'm sure there's been a ton written about this Called the Jakarta Method, um, about how the New York Times and other organizations basically willingly became propaganda arms uh, for the Shit. CIA and the State Department, um, <laughs> in, in, in just cheerleading democracy and help, help helping uh, sell these these coups. So I think by the '90s, that that sort of close knit relationship was probably gone. It just seems that like they reflexively still go there.
1: I mean, I don't think I have to even say this, but this is why independent media is so important and why everybody should be supporting and reading and listening to independent media and independent media producers. Um, but getting back to the subject at hand, um, the Iraq War, of course, was another uh, awful stain on the, the major media companies in the United States. In 2004, a couple of years after the war began, uh, the New York Times did have a mea culpa um, they, they acknowledged that they'd been perhaps too intent on rushing scoops into the paper, quote unquote. Um, then Howard Kurtz, who was- You a, think? A, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's debatable. Howard Kurtz, uh, he was a former Washington Post writer uh, during the early uh, period of the Iraq War. Uh, he wrote in a CNN piece from 2013 that major news organizations aided and abetted the Bush administration's march to war on what turned out to be faulty premises. All too often, skepticism was checked at the door and the shaky claims of top officials and unnamed sources were trumpeted as fact. So Kurtz went back and analyzed uh, a lot of the coverage of his paper uh, from August t- 2002 through March 2003. So a pretty short period of time. Um, during right, which
0: that coincides with the launch of the war.
1: Yes, yes. And during that time, there were more than 140 front page stories that focused heavily on the administration's rhetoric against Iraq. Um, you know, Cheney says Iraqi strike is justified, for example. Bush tells the United Nations it must stand up to Hussein or US will. Um, so it's, it, and this is something common in the, in, the, in the corporate media is they just sort of, they, they're, yeah, they're just trumpeting the exact words of political leaders. Um, and you know, in contrast to all these stories, like the pieces that were questioning the evidence or the rationale for the war were frequently buried, minimized, or, or spiked by the publications.
0: So spiked, for those who don't know, means that they were withheld, that they weren't published.
2: Right. And, and so this problem hasn't gone away in the years since the Iraq War, either. Um, we saw the same kind of refusal to challenge the State Department line as recently as a few months ago uh, with the ousting of Evo Morales in Bolivia. So if you're unfamiliar with this story, Evo Morales is was a leftist president running for re-election. He's the first ever president from the indigenous population in Bolivia, and he'd spread Bolivia's natural gas and mineral wealth among the masses. The Associated Press, for one, called his government uh, a success by almost every metric. Uh, And he wins the election handily, unsurprising, given his popularity, but immediately there are allegations of election fraud coming from his far-right opponents and from the U.S. State Department. So this ultimately gets him kicked out of the country, and he's replaced by a little-known far-right senator named Janine Inez, who becomes the, quote, interim president. Janine Inez happens to be extremely friendly to the U.S.
0: Oh, you don't say.
2: (laughs) Coincidentally or not. Um, uh, But back to these allegations of election fraud. They stem from two studies by the OAS, which is the Organization of American States. Uh, And this is an organization that has often been criticized for just doing the United States bidding. So to anyone paying attention, it, it was evident that the claims made in the OAS report were bogus. There were high level officials within the OAS itself who were openly <laughs> saying as much. <laughs>
0: it seems, um, seems like a good t- like tip, right? Like, oh, oh, they're actually saying it themselves. Okay. <laughs> there
2: were also independent studies that asserted that it was the audit of the election that was fraudulent and not the election itself. The Center for Economic Policy Research um, released their own detailed report, Uh, and they said, quote, neither the OAS nor any party has demonstrated that there were widespread or systematic irregularities in the election of October 20th, 2019. Again, so to anyone paying attention, this situation was suspect at best, and at worst, uh, a military coup in a resource-rich country. But the mainstream U.S. press bent over backwards not to draw this conclusion. The uh, the Wall Street Journal, for one, called it a, quote, democratic breakout. Not surprising. Um, the New York Times uh, talked about how this whole situation could help, could actually help restore Bolivia's wounded democracy, uh, and that was a quote.
1: Yeah, and it was, it was New York Times, I recall, like, an Atlantic writer. Doing the same thing, heralding this, you know, this overthrow of a dictator in favor of democracy. It's kind of like these. It's kind of like the the, the leadership of, of the Democratic Party as well. Like they're they're living decades in the past, and they haven't realized that we're like in we're in like the third decade of of the two thousands. <laughs>
2: What they're doing is just continuing in this long Cold War tradition of dutifully echoing the State Department line and depicting overthrows of uh, regimes that are adverse to the United States as advancements of democracy. Um, a couple months later, uh, when it was too late, um, the New York Times came out uh, with another uh, report that amended their original reporting on this issue and acknowledge that you know what maybe the oas report was actually uh quote deeply flawed um but at this point a military junta had already replaced the democratically elected leader of Bolivia. yeah
1: like morales is where i don't even know where he is now but i mean he he was deposed and i don't think that's going to change
0: you know just once i like it if if uh these legacy media outlets would would get a foreign story right like just one fucking time in my life, I would just like to see it one fucking time, and I, I don't mean to come down hard on this. I mean, obviously, the challenges in international reporting are very real. Uh, foreign correspondence bureaus have been closed down, um, and and media isn't as profitable as it as it used to be. That said, be a little more critical when you get a you know a report about about election fraud in in a country. Uh, you know, in Latin America where a, a leftist leader gets, gets deposed. I mean, I think. So, so do you think, do you think this
2: is, this is lack of due diligence or do you think this is, um, I, just ideolo- I don't want to speculate. Ideologically driven?
0: I don't, I don't want to speculate. I just know that there is a, there is a trend, right? There's this pattern that, that these stories, these foreign stories keep getting misreported, um, in ways that, that prop up, uh, U.S. friendly regimes that, that end up immiserating the people. Um, and I'm sure that we'll start getting reports out of, uh, Bolivia. But again, I, don't want to, I don't want to speculate too, too heavily here, but there are implications. I mean, on the report, in the reporting, uh, around Venezuela as well, right? So you have, I don't know, it's very hard to, to take American reporting of what's going on in in other countries at, at face value. Um, I, I would just encourage our listeners to be a little more skeptical. So as bad as the reporting on foreign stories has been, the domestic reporting has also been kind of checkered. Like if you look at the subprime mortgage crisis, the, the lead up to the subprime mortgage crisis – uh, major media outlets failed to warn their readers that, that this was coming. Uh, Dean Starkman, who is a former reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and then uh, went on to work at Audit, which is a business journalism project affiliated with the Columbia Journalism Review, tracked more than 700 stories published by leading media organizations about the housing market, mortgage lenders, Wall Street, from 2000 to 2007, mid-2007. And he chronicles his findings in a 2009 Columbia Journalism Review cover story called Power Problem. And what he concluded was that while journalists, business journalists did a good job covering the emerging housing bubble and the abuses of the mortgage industry from 2000 to 2003, from 2004 to 2006, as the bubble inflated and as the abuses grew, they kind of fell off. And you see a lot of pieces that, that are like, Puff pieces about CEOs who would soon be discredited by this, by this crisis. And they fail to connect the dots for people. So, I mean, this is, this is yet another example, um, of how, you know, a few major trusted media institutions that really control the, the narrative have a responsibility to the public to get things right. And when they don't, it's a fucking catastrophe. Um, and so, so yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. Um, but anyway, we have a special guest today, uh, Maria Bustios, and we'll be right back. Uh, and we'll be talking with her about the industry.
1: Have you ever dreamed about putting hundreds of hardworking people out of a job so you can buy that extra vacation home? Do you aspire to live in a world without local news, resulting in uninformed citizens and rampant government corruption? If this sounds exciting, Alden Global Capital just might be the place for you to become the oligarch you know you can be. At Alden, we are committed to laying waste to what's left of the news business by buying countless flailing papers and websites, loading them up with crushing debt, extracting every last penny we can, and then scrapping the whole operation kicking countless intelligent reporters and editors out on the curb and onto the unemployment rolls. If you're a self-starter who's just dying to make that down payment on your second yacht, we'd love to hear from you. Alden Global Capital, where vulture is culture. Our guest today is Maria Bustillos, the founding editor of the alternative news and culture magazine, Popula. She's also Columbia Journalism Review's MSNBC public editor. She's previously been a contributor to The New Yorker, Harper's, The Guardian, and the great lady herself, The New York Times. Welcome to the pod, Maria.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Oh, yeah. We're psyched. Um, How's it going out there in in California?
3: Like, amazing and beautiful. Like, you'd never know that everything is collapsing. It's like (laughs) glorious weather and everybody's like, you know, outside... Uh, in the park. And it's actually weird how nice mm. it is. <laughs>
1: Are people like wearing masks and stuff or? Yeah. Okay. I
3: mean, you know, the, the new guidance that came out in San Francisco is you have to be wearing one if you're within 30 feet of anybody. So you can carry your mask around with you, but if anybody shows up within 30
0: feet of you, you're supposed to put it on. 30 feet. A, yeah. I'm
1: like, yeah. For like New Yorkers it's like 30 feet.
0: That's like a block. <laughs> new York, it's like less than 30 inches.
3: Right now. Well, you know, we're in, Oak, we're in kind of a, a sort of thinly populated part of Oakland and it's actually fairly residential, very suburban area. And there's a little park, you know? And so everybody's cause they put putting their mask on and a dog comes up to you and like, now we know we can pet a dog. So I'm much more relaxed now that I'm free to pet dogs. Like that's like totally altered my life.
1: <laughs> totally. Yeah. You know. um. But yeah, we brought you on here today to talk about the media. Um we're seeing a phenomenon now uh, in the last couple of weeks especially. Um and what that phenomenon is is a chronic inability to accurately describe what is happening on video or in person like right before our very eyes. Um uh, so most people who can see don't have that issue, but the very people whose job it is to convey to the public what is happening can't seem to do it. And you know, the worst to me, of all, is the New York Times. Um, so we've seen it in tweets and headlines, uh, sub-headlines and the bodies of the articles at the Times and other publications. Um, so it, it's kind of the entire output. We see this inability for the Times writers and editors to accurately portray police brutality um, during this historic time that we're in. Um, and there's a good summary of that by Caitlin Schneider for Discourse Blog. Um, it's called Rubber Bullets Don't Fire Themselves. And she describes what she calls the linguistic gymnastics of the New York Times with their tweets and and with their uh with their headlines and with their stories. Um so uh, I just want to share a couple of the of the most remarkable tweets that have come out of the Times lately. Um during the George Floyd protests and in the days after George Floyd was murdered by uh, by a police officer. Um so this one was May 26 and here here goes. Mayor Jacob Frey of Minneapolis tweeted Tuesday afternoon that four officers involved in the arrest of a man who died after being handcuffed and pinned to the ground by an officer's knee had been fired.
3: The knee all by itself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's an independently functioning knee with its own, you know, cere- cerebellum and everything else.
0: It's a potential well, uh- knee. Alex, didn't you ever see that show Assy McGee, where it's like the the cop uh, is just it's just an ass and legs, and it like it talks.
1: (laughs) I I didn't, but um, seems like I missed out on something in my childhood.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it was on Adult Swim, and um, I can't believe we're talking about Assy McGee (laughs) right now. (laughs) But it's a hard boiled cop, and the premise is that he, because of an injury, he's literally just an ass and legs and, oh, wow. and sentient. So, yeah, sounds
1: like might be an affliction. That's pretty common among the cops. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But you know, look, the, the tweets word salad, um, in addition to obviously like giving the knee, like decision-making process and, and never actually saying that the officer um, was, was the person who did it. Um, and there's another one that's, that's, I think even, even more remarkable. It's three days later. So this is, you know, George Floyd has been dead for several days. It says on May 29th, breaking news, Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who pressed his knee into George Floyd's neck while Floyd pleaded that he couldn't breathe is in custody. Charges haven't yet been announced. So they're, instead of saying, first of all, they don't even say that he, he was killed. They don't say he died. So he's dead and they say, listen, the officer, not, not that's the officer that that killed George Floyd in custody, but the officer who pressed his knee into George Floyd's neck while Floyd pleaded that he couldn't breathe.
3: Well, I've been thinking about this constantly, you know, the, the passive voice, this is an old, old problem. There's nothing new about this. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, with respect to police brutality, a lot of the problem is that if they say Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd they have to that can't that has to be the beginning of a bigger conversation So I kind of see the times and other outlets like you know that old uh, uh, Sort of uh, world war two thing about the big lie. I kind of think what we're facing right now is the big truth where we have to question our reality at such an at, at, at such a base level that the description it doesn't, it, it's not even that it doesn't fit in a headline. It doesn't fit in a news article. Like the entire structure by which a guy like Derek Chauvin can um kill somebody. And if there hadn't been a camera there, we wouldn't even freaking know about it. So like for every, every Floyd, there's got to be 50 other people that we don't know anything about that like just somehow died in police in police custody like just because there wasn't some kid there with a camera willing to sit there and witness it so it's like the the failure to put this stuff into words and to resort to the passive voice and all that stuff i kind of see as more of a symptom than a problem like it it what's wrong is so big
1: Hmm. i mean is do you think there's a a level of um, feel you mentioned fealty to power a little while ago. So, I mean, you think there's a level of fealty to the police as if because they are a powerful institution that, uh, the paper does not want to piss off. Whereas they're happy to piss off protesters who are always uh, described with active verbs when there is violence from protesters.
3: We already understand the world in a certain way, like from television, for example, like you notice that they canceled that show cops, you know, cops mm-hmm. was on the air for 33 years. I mean, you know, I was, pregnant with my youngest during the 92 riots in Los Angeles. I mean, I was, you know, I was, uh, it it was very similar to what's happening right now. And you will, you guys are young, but you may recall that the reason that those riots started, they started within hours of the acquittal of the police officers who just Bashed the head of Rodney King in also on camera also a question of surveillance Like I wrote about this once for the new yorker, you know, it's like there's a whole A lot of academic literature and stuff written about the around the idea of surveillance Which is like, you know the people Making recordings and using them to join with each other and like seize power and seize the public attention and seize control of the discourse Okay, that same thing happened in 1992 but like the understanding of, of, of power and how it works in American society has not been altered from that day to this. Like I'm telling you, the whole big structure, it's so, it's so large, you know? It's like we have to understand not only power of the police. It's not even a matter of being afraid to piss them off. It's, it's a matter of having to recalibrate your concept of reality, what life is in this country like what it means to get an education, what it means to be a citizen, what it means to vote, what it means to uh, participate, what it means to buy something at fucking Amazon, right? Like all these things partake in a structure that is massive, interconnected, and like global to the society. And so I kind of feel like we're kind of only nibbling around the edges until we address the fact that the whole thing is broken from Mm. the middle and that power itself is broken. The way that it the way that it works is broken, and media fails to be fails to uh, describe accurately what's happening because it's the water it's the water we're swimming in, and i, I I'm I'm in I put myself in that fishbowl to some degree. I am like a goldfish that's like trying to leap out of the fishbowl, but you know, with limited success because we grew up in this. You know, am I not going to believe in the Enlightenment now? This was like a big, you know. What what does your college education mean now? You know, when I found out that the guy that runs the um, University of Phoenix, John Sperling, Mm -hmm. graduated from Reed College. (laughs) You know,
1: like a small independent school.
3: Yeah, like a liberal arts, the most granola school in the world. Right. And there's all these, you know, George. Bush, Yale, right? It's like, everybody wants to send their kids to one of these schools. What are we teaching people? Like all these institutions are so questionable. Barack Obama, you know, Harvard Law. We're supposed to think well of this thing. I don't think well of it anymore. I think the Obama presidency was an abject failure. It brought us to this moment. But nobody wants to say, I'm sorry, President Obama, it's your birthday, but your administration was a disaster and a failure. It's a shame. I worked for really hard for your campaign, but that shit did not work out. And so it's like... Who at the New York Times is going to say that the Obama presidency is a failure? You can count on one hand the people in media. You know, me, Stoller, you guys. Like, you know, who is who else is critical of Obama the way that it should be criticized? If you want to tell the truth and describe reality accurately.
1: And even the editorial board.
0: Taibbi Greenwald.
1: Well, right. But I mean, even even the New York Times editorial board—they, um, I mean, their endorsements are are just all over the place, you know. Like they, I think they just endorsed Jamal Bowman, who was challenging Elliot Engel. Um, but like in the presidential primary in the Democratic primary, they endorsed Klobuchar and Warren. I think one out of the fifteen <laughs> voted for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> one out of the fifteen, and Bernie at the time, I believe, he was the front runner. Um, or if not, if not, he had just kind of descended from like ahead of Biden to a little behind Biden. Um, and so even their, even their editorial staff, um, I mean, the editorial board is different from their, their opinion writers, but, um, you know, the central opinion folks there, um, are also scared to speak too much truth to, to major power.
0: But how, how much of this problem do you think is, is, uh, due to a a sort of limited pool of experts or, 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 or who, or like who journalists have in their, in their Rolodex? Like, so I do wonder, like, we talked a little bit about fealty to power, but how much of that is a lack of expertise on, on behalf of the journalist and, and who and who they may have, have to rely on?
3: That's like a really difficult question because I just don't think there's one answer. You know, like each journalist is like in his in, in, operating in an ecosystem of his own. Right. Like. And uh, speaking of fealty, it's not only power that people are, you know, sort of loyal to. They're also loyal to their colleagues and their bosses you know, your job depends on a certain, you can only go so far. I mean, I kind of saw the uh, the endorsements at the New York Times of Klobuchar and Warren. I mean, it was so pathetic not to choose one person, first of all. Like, what, a, what an embarrassment. But, like, you could see that it was the centrists, you know, at war with those farther to the left who were trying to compromise, you know, on a warrant endorsement, like this was always seen as a compromise, like, you know, if you are a leftist, then, you know, the, the best you're going to do is is Bernie Sanders, you know, I love Bernie, but he's not really that far to the left, you know, but I mean, this is, that's as close as you're going to get, you know, to some policy uh, sort of proposals that reflect your convictions, But Warren was seen as, you know, yeah, but she she knows how to handle business, you know, she was tough on the banks She was, you know, may not have a lot of foreign policy experience, but it was like, you know not not a You know kind of willing to go along to get along and a better negotiator in the Senate or something like that and so like those those kinds of compromises to me don't strike me as question of like, you know lack of expertise or or having the expertise. It's more triangulating within the systems of power that people are operating in the media itself, which is like a super complex question. It's like, you know, where you work, who you work for, what your career trajectory is, like where you who you think you're gonna convince. I mean, there is a I I personally don't make this argument, mm-hmm. but I have a lot of respect for, for example, the farther left commentators at MSNBC, despite the fact that they Enrage me, and I want to throw my computer across the room a lot of the time. <laughs> this is their answer, right? And and it's we have a big tent. You know, there's a lot of different ways to approach political coverage, and it's one answer to say I am going to operate within the system to make as many people aware of of different views as I possibly can. And in order to do that, they have got to make this huge amount of compromises there's gigantic, you know, fences around what they can say and what they can't say. But like, I, I, I watch a lot of MSNBC. I have to for work and
0: I think I, I feel for you. Yeah. It's,
3: it's, I didn't realize when I took the job, like it was really dumb. I'm like, yeah, I want to do that job. And then I just like, I realized like, Oh, Jesus Christ. I got to watch this thing. What was it? You know, whoa. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> um, over time I can see, That say, Maddo, uh, Chris Hayes, um, you know, there's a few of them that are, I I think Ali Velshi's been doing a good job lately, you know, and they're making a difference. They're in front of millions of people. I get really angry at a lot of the lacuna, you know, the glossing over and the dumbing down and whatnot. But I can see over months and months, this is better than if they weren't there.
1: So it, and it's not just MSNBC or New York Times. It's not just, uh, coverage of the protests. It's also, for example, Politico. Um, they have their Politico playbook, which is kind of the DC gossip little, uh, two minute, three minute podcast with a written version every morning. I, I listen to it a fair amount. It's informative. Uh, but sometimes, uh, and, and they're always sponsored by like Blue Cross Blue Shield or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Pfizer or something like that. Um, Which is always funny to me. But, um, there from, from Thursday the 11th, there was one and it's about Trump. It's the title is Trump's latest zigzag by Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman. Uh, and this one paragraph was going around Twitter like the end of the week because it's just so remarkable. So here it goes. Donald John Trump is torn, torn between the impulse to speak and cater to his base and the demands of governing a multiracial country in the throes of unprecedented turmoil and upheaval. He seems generally uncertain of his place in the moment and in the broader history of our country.
3: <laughs> well, he does seem generally uncertain of his <laughs> place in, in, on earth or anywhere
0: or on the ramp. I mean, it's true in on a vague sense, right? <laughs> like,
1: right. But the idea that what they, what these, you know, these two DC journalists who are professional observers of politics, who should know better are are claiming is that tr- Trump is torn between you know doing the right thing like addressing the racism in this country and trying to bring people together and doing what he always does 110% <laughs> of the time which is to to call immigrants and people of color you know uh, rodents and rapists and to then he, so but this it gets even it gets even crazier because not only is this paragraph so so sort of out of touch but the next paragraph um It describes how he is is scheduled to do do a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, for on on June, uh, 19th, Juneteenth, um, the, the day that all the free, all the slaves were finally freed in the United States in 1865. And not only it's, and it's even worse because Tulsa, Oklahoma is the site of a huge, huge massacre. White people rose up in the early 1920s. It was, Tulsa was a very, um, it was called black wall street at the time uh it was a very prosperous area for black americans and white people rose up and killed 300 african americans so this is the next paragraph they're they're literally mentioning that he is going to be doing his rally there uh the paragraph before they were saying that he's he's not sure what to do he, he maybe he's going to address the race problem maybe he's not going to it just kind of blew my mind like the
3: i mean Okay, but you know that this has nothing to do with Trump, right? Because like Politico is like the like access central. Like they like a Perrine wrote a really great piece about this some years back about how like they're like the, the kings of this. Like we might have been in the Baffler, I can't remember. Anyway, um they are the, the just exemplars of the type of journalist that just wants to be on the phone with like every every idiot in Washington, you know, being told what to think and so like in exchange for that they they parrot so much nonsense you know they just like to me like the paragraph that you just read is the standard issue methodology of every republican in washington trying to cover for the fact that they hired uh, as their leader a completely incompetent ruin of a man who is like has every bad characteristic a person can have practically greedy and mendacious and, and, you know, ill, ill read and, you know, like completely ignorant of, of history. And I mean, it's, it's really a wild thing. Cause I mean, I'm old and I've seen some really crazy shit. Like, you know, the, the second Bush administration I thought was really the nadir of what was even possible. Mm-hmm. You know and this is when they started like asking for loyalty oaths you will you might remember like there were bush rallies This in the second uh, In the second bush administration They were making people sign Loyalty oaths to go to rallies. I mean the sort of the stuff that we're seeing now With trump is just not new and and it's a really big mistake that people make It's the republicans who are responsible for the xenophobia they're responsible for the militarized police this all started a long time ago you know from and, and i'm talking about before nine eleven, you know like this started with reagan the idea that the flag belongs only to republicans the idea that democrats are traitors the idea that like you know the left are uh moochers and you know all this kind of stuff like this is this is so not new it's just that it's next yeah it just sort of concentrated, like, 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 you know, the country is like, we're like ants under a magnifying glass now with this thing. So like when you read a paragraph like that, to me, it sounds like just a plain old Republican press release, you know, to try to cover over.
1: Do you think that some source inside the white house literally just gave them that and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. We're going to put it in our playbook because it sounds cool. And we're, we're like, we're objective. So we just, we're, we're scribes for, for the people in power.
3: I mean, you know, I, I read it a little bit and every time I read it, I get that feeling. I have no idea, you know, what their editorial process is, but I don't see any uh, sort of challenge or confrontation ever in the pages of that website. It Maybe it's, this may be me and I'm reading the wrong people. I mean, cause like, let's be fair too. like the New York times, there are so many great writers there oh, yeah. who are being so, like exactly like Walker said, who are being betrayed and their work is besmirched by the bullshit, both sidesism and, you know, the sort of Bennett regime of the op-ed pages that like throw the really hard work and the objectivity and that like, you know, just amazing, clear-sighted great stuff that comes out of there every day it's a
0: question and so it's well so- they're being used yeah that stuff is the that stuff is the tinder on which the whole publication burns like that's yeah. that's the baseline that is everything that they that their credibility is based on and because they're such a legacy outlet and they're so big and they've got so much money and so much rep- and the reputation is you know it's the gray lady it's the paper no like it's uh because of that they they have the resources to do the, the the reporting that smaller outlets don't have like they have foreign correspondence they can do i mean maybe not so much anymore a lot of those bureaus have closed down but they 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 have the resources to do a lot more than smaller papers do and because of the because of that they attract an. they have a built-in audience and so when they the, I, I guess the sensational the sensationalism the bullshit the the op-eds That it is a betrayal. It's a betrayal. It's a betrayal.
3: And on the other hand, it's the world. It's life. You know, it's like how it's how we have to live. I mean, this was another thing I was going to say earlier about being like anciently old. When I was like, you know, in my twenties, I was sort of like, it. It didn't. It didn't even occur to me that things were going to get worse or that they could. Right. Like I came up in the eighties, and there was, you know, a lot of prosperity um, and it was like this materialism that was sort of encroaching and I had you know you'd go to school with people that want to get MBAs and they seemed kind of weird. but like you know, I didn't really think about the interconnectedness of this stuff. It, it, our political opponents never go away is what I'm driving mm. at. They never will. It's like you know um, right now, the con the conservatives that are in power now are, are people that came up you know in the summer of love and when you lived through that you know and the sort of aftermath of it and it seemed like so obvious that all you need is love was going to be the answer and that people were going to share more and that continued to happen for a while like you know i went to school like in in uh you know, UC Berkeley and at St. John Co- St. John's college. And, you know, it was always very easy to get money for school for anybody who wanted it. Um, no, Nobody had any real student debt to speak of. You might have like a thousand or $2,000 or something like that to cover like extra dorm expenses. You know, nobody had that student debt thing yeah. and everybody who wanted to go could go pretty much. When I came up and so it was like, of course, this is going to only get better. And the people who are like, you know, in poverty now are going to get better education and there's going to be better spread of the benefits, you know, that those of us who had uh, kind of come up in the so-called meritocratic bullshit, you know, kind of believe that like, yeah, we're taking steps and that it'll get better, better, you know, but that did not happen because our ideological opponents um, never gave up. And they never will ever. They'll just yeah. keep it being
1: like that. Well, and you mentioned, you mentioned the Reagan era. You know, that's when everything, uh, you, the unions were, were starting to get, ta- you know, get taken down. That's when everything became super, um, privatized. And, uh, then you had Bill Clinton in the early nineties who went way to the center of, of the Democrats. And he adopted a lot of those kind of right wing free market economics things. We talked about this in a, in a previous episode. Um, so yeah, of course, things gotten worse.
3: I mean, I look at the third way now, you know, and like, you know, with respect to Tony Blair, as well as Clinton, and I see so much disingenuousness and so much like willingness to capitulate to a uh, business that was harmful. I mean, it, it was pretty clear that it would be harmful, you know, like the carceral uh, state, you know, I guess owes, owes more to Bill Clinton than it does to any other person. From what I understand, I'm not and, like huge. Uh, in-
1: Joseph Biden.
3: Yeah, I know, right? It's really frightening. Well,
1: so to get back to what you were saying about how, yeah, the enemy is still the same, nothing really seems to change. Um, do you think mainstream media, the corporate media, can correct some of their errors? Or are these so ingrained that we have to seek other other kind of platforms and, and sidestep them?
3: I think what we're doing here is really important for that reason. And it's like the internet is, is the only sort of, truly egalitarian force that can challenge that structure and i think That's why happening. they're so afraid of it yeah i think it's happening i mean well i mean you can see it's 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 not really that hard to shut off i mean like you can see what they've done in china you know after tire square really i think a lot of uh, a lot of institutional power like was really like whoa we better better figure this out So I kind of don't know what we're facing, but like for the moment, what we're doing here is really important. But yeah, no, I don't think that I don't think that institutional media is in a position to to create reforms. I'm really encouraged by what happened with James Bennett. And I would also um, sort of suggest that the Internet made that happen.
1: I'm sure it played a part, a big part.
3: Yeah. I mean, those guys, you know, everybody now in, in media watches Twitter for a reaction and when there's a real groundswell, you know? But I mean, this was going on for a really long time. I mean, you know, Bennett was there for ages and ages and, you know, was getting more and more emboldened, you know, like the hiring Brett Stevens and hiring Barry Weiss and, you know, these very strident and uh, sort of, I, in my opinion, really ill-equipped and ill-informed right-wing voices to, uh, you know, sort of amplify that in all in the name of like, you know, balance. I mean, it's really, really, really terrible. And so you guys had a lot of people just like on Twitter saying like, this is not acceptable. This is not acceptable. this one are on years and years and years. And so finally there was the last straw. And so like, I find that encouraging.
1: Well, let's end on a positive note. Uh, Maria, what are some of the best outlets doing journalism today?
3: I really love the baffler right now. Oh yeah. I think. I think The Baffler, uh, I think Chris Lehman is, is is great, too, doing doing great work at TNR. Um, I really love uh, seeing David Roth over there. You know, they're kind of stretching out a little bit. Oh, so like, is,
1: is David Roth writing for TNR, The New Republic? Yeah,
3: he's written a couple of really great pieces oh, great. for TNR recently, and Perrine is doing amazing stuff. I would follow Perrine to the moon. I just think he's he's always great. Um, Slate is, uh, the political editor at Slate now is, uh, Tom Skoka, a great favorite of mine and Skoka has Ashley Feinberg over there I know. who has been amazing.
1: Oh my God. Her, her article about the, the flush, the Supreme court flush, Stephen Breyer, <laughs> that, was so funny. that was amazing. I mean, she analyzed the audio. Oh my God. That was so funny.
3: I do. It's so compelling with this incontrovertible evidence, you know, the same thing with the P tape her yeah. P tape piece was just no, outrageous
1: because she takes like an investigative reporting approach to these really hilarious topics and writes yeah. really long articles and takes it very seriously even though she's really funny and makes a lot of jokes like I, yeah, yeah. She's, she's a unique but the
3: and underlying important. her like her underlying ethics is absolutely unimpeachable she's like a she's a sort of a political ethicist who's like sort of also hilarious so I really yeah. enjoyed her a lot I'm a
1: huge fan, I'm a huge fan. So we gotta strong. get her on the pod someday
3: Oh hell yeah! After she's the watching.
1: next the next investigation of um, excrement or something like that.
3: Yeah, I think I think she's I um, I think she's probably can diagnose Donald Trump's um, water drinking malady.
1: Oh wow! Maybe she's working on it as we speak. It'll drop tomorrow <laughs> I know morning, so,
3: man. She's got <laughs> a draft of neurologists. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, uh, yeah, everyone, everyone, um, yeah, check out Ashley Feinberg's work and. Um, And also check out Popula because Popula is an awesome website that Maria founded a couple of years ago. That's how I met her through, um, through the network, the civil network. And, um, it's, it's one of the most, uh, it's one of the most unique looking websites I've ever seen. Um, you clearly had, had an image that you wanted and you got it and it looks really, it's really neat and idiosyncratic. So,
3: yeah. Well, we liked, we wanted to look like a zine because I really felt that the, there's a sort of tyranny of uh, tasteful web design that it, Mm -hmm. it does a disservice to um, you know, the idea of people being able to approach and question journalism in it as, as peers around the world. Right. So I didn't want to like kind of go under this rubric of like, you know, we're respectable, you know, there's nothing respectable about it.
1: No gentrifier fonts or anything.
3: (laughs) No, I would like all of you to come and, and write for it. And the other thing that we're trying to do is um, start a cooperative and journalism cooperative with a lot of different publications, you know, all sharing one subscriber base. And oh, wow. one. Yeah, you're
1: well, you're speaking my language. That's, yeah. that's awesome. so
3: I'm like, that's what I'm really working on hard right now.
1: Podcast too, perhaps.
3: <laughs> yeah, for realsies. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, but yeah, w- that, well, I think we could have a whole nother episode on that uh, collaborative, collaborative journalism. But, um, I mean, thanks so much for being on and, 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 and shop with us, Maria.
3: Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Bye guys.
1: All right. Take care. Thanks yeah. so much.
3: It was really fun.
1: All right. Talk to you soon.
3: See ya.
2: Okay. Bye. You know.
1: That's it for this week's free Gilded Age episode. Stay tuned later this week for a premium episode with our extended interview with Maria Bustillos. Subscribe on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Gilded Age, for access to this and all future premium episodes. Gilded Age is a project of Opt Out News. Original theme music by Direwolf.